again. Looks like most people are making their way back to their seats. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. And in case we haven't met before, my name is Jason, and I'm serving as the summer interim pastor while Pastor Chris is away. And over the summer, we have been doing a series on the grand narrative of the grand story of Scripture, all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And we've talked about how understanding the whole of the Bible is kind of like building a big puzzle. And what we've really been trying to do is build the outline of the puzzle so that as we have all the pieces in the middle, we have a frame of reference in which to put them. Another way we might think of this is in a maze. If we go to the first slide, uh, one before that. Yeah, so if you've ever gone to one of these mazes where the walls are higher than your head and you're in there, unless you have a fantastic sense of direction, it's pretty easy to get lost. And really, all you can see is the walls around you. But if you took an aerial view higher up, you could say, oh yeah, that's where I am. And that's where I am relative to the big picture. And this is where the path will take me. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do. And I, I think if we just randomly open the Bible and say, oh, let's read from here today, that's kind of like dropping yourself in the middle of the maze without a clue. But we're trying to take the big picture. And so what we've seen is that the whole Bible is indeed a story. We found in the early chapters of Genesis that the setting is the heavens and the earth. That the main character, or the hero of the story, is God himself. And his desire is that his image bearers would rule the world on his behalf. Now, in any movie or any novel you might read, the hero has a desire, and that desire is always blocked by some kind of problem. And in the Bible, that problem is that the image bearers gave their rule over to the serpent. So instead of the image bearers ruling the world, now there's a serpent who is ruling the world. But that doesn't change God's desire. He still wants his image bearers to rule the world. And when we get to the end of the Bible, Revelation 20 to 22, indeed, that's exactly what happens. And the whole story of the Bible, from Genesis 4 all the way to Revelation 19, is the outworking of God's plan to restore the rule of the earth back to his image bearers. And we saw that Genesis 3.15 was one of the corner pieces of our puzzle. Very important piece where it promised, where God promised that a seed of the woman would strike the serpent's head. Now, if, if he strikes the serpent's head, that, that's how you kill a snake. You don't, kill, you don't strike its tail, right? You kill it, kill it by striking its head. And so if the serpent dies, there goes his kingdom. And now the, the promised seed can take the kingdom. And we also saw in that verse that there are two teams in this story. That there's the, the seed of the woman, in the plural sense, and the seed of the serpent, in the plural sense. Now, we're, we're not looking for baby snakes. We're looking for those who are aligned with the serpent and his desires to stop the promised seed from striking his head while the seed of the woman and that team are all those who share the woman's desire for the promised seed to strike the serpent's head to lead humanity back to the garden and bring peace to the earth. And we followed the story from Genesis 3.15, tracing the line of promise down to a man named Abraham. And God made a covenant with Abraham that at a high level, it promised three big things, land, seed, and blessing. 
And each of those three will later be amplified or clarified by further covenants. For example, we saw that the land promise was amplified by the land covenant of Deuteronomy 29 and 30, which promised that even though Israel would not be able to keep the Mosaic law, God would bring about a circumcision of their hearts that would bring repentance, that God would bless them, bring them back to the land, and bless them in their land forever. And we saw last week that the seed promise would be amplified by the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant promised that a descendant of David would be an eternal person who reigns on an eternal throne over an eternal kingdom. And we saw that in Luke chapter 1, the angel Gabriel tells Mary that her son Jesus would be the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And today we're going to see that the blessing aspect of the Abrahamic covenant is amplified by the new covenant. So we'll be looking at that today. But just to, to fill us in on the, the gaps of history, we had King David, where we were last week, and David lived around 1000 BC, 1000 years before Christ, and after David was his son, King Solomon. But after Solomon died, the nation of Israel split into two kingdoms. So there was the northern kingdom called Israel, and the southern kingdom called Judah. The northern kingdom had nothing but evil kings. Every single one of them was evil. And they were not of the line of David, so they weren't even legitimate kings. And so that northern kingdom lasted a few hundred years until God allowed the nation of Assyria, which was kind of the superpower at that time, to wipe them out. So the kingdom of Israel was gone. Judah remained in the south. And in the southern kingdom, this is the line of David who was ruling, there were a few good kings, but mostly bad kings. So occasionally we had spiritual revival break out, and the nation would be blessed. But more often than not, they failed. And during this time, God was also sending them prophets. Now the job of the prophet was to call Israel back to covenant faithfulness. Back to faithfulness to the Mosaic Law, which we saw in Deuteronomy 28. If they obeyed the Mosaic Law, they would be blessed. If they disobeyed it, they would be cursed. And so a lot of the prophets would go and say, hey, look, all these bad things that have happened, that's Deuteronomy 28. You've disobeyed, and that's what Moses said would happen, and that's what has happened. And so the job of the prophet was to call them back to repentance, back to faithfulness to their God. Well, the southern kingdom of Judah likewise failed, and God allowed the next superpower after Assyria, which was Babylon, Babylon came and laid siege on Jerusalem. And for about 20 years, they were under Babylonian rule. And then the final king of Judah was a foolish king. He rebelled against Babylon, against King Nebuchadnezzar. And so they completely wiped out Jerusalem, burned the city with fire, destroyed the temple of God, wiped out the population, took the survivors into exile in Babylon, and that is all exactly what Deuteronomy 28 said would happen. So it's all one connected story that happened. Now, the prophet Jeremiah lived through that time. So he was warning them, even before Babylon came, he was warning them, repent, turn back, <laughs> turn back to God. They didn't, and so he said, all right, judgment is coming. 
Nothing will change God's mind. Judgment is absolutely coming. So Jeremiah had a message of doom, but he also had a message of hope. So let's look a little more closely at this. In Jeremiah 5, 23, he says this, But this people has a stubborn and rebellious heart. They have turned aside and departed. A few chapters later, in 17, verse 9, he will say that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. And the idea here is that it's completely incurable. You can't fix your own heart. Now back in Deuteronomy, Moses had told the Israelites that you shall impress the words of mine, the law of God, upon your heart and your soul. So they were supposed to write the law of God on their heart. But what actually happened? They couldn't do it. And so Jeremiah would say in chapter 17, verse 1, that the sin of Judah is written with an iron stylus, with a diamond point it is engraved on the tablet of their hearts. So there you were. They, they were supposed to have the law of God written on their hearts, but instead their hearts were like stone, and with an iron chisel, they're engraving sin on their hearts. And so Jeremiah promised in chapter 11 that there would be absolute certainty of judgment. He'll say this, They have followed other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah, those are the two kingdoms, have broken my covenant, that's talking about the Mosaic covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, Behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which they will not be able to escape. Though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. So Jeremiah had a bad, bad message for them. A message of doom and certain destruction. But later on, he would also give them a message of hope. In fact, if you'll turn with your Bibles uh, with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. After all the bad stuff, now comes some good stuff. And he will say, starting in verse 10, I'll say this. Thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, that's talking about 70 years of captivity in Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Talking about the nation of Israel. And then verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for shalom, peace, prosperity, and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Now, this, this verse is on my top ten list of most abused and misapplied verses. <laughs> we, we see this all the time, don't we? It's a, it's a very popular verse, and I think the, the appeal is we're tempted to see a verse that we like and just immediately try to apply it to ourselves. But uh, keep in mind, this was in a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the exiles in Babylon in the 580s BC. So it was specifically for them. Now, we could ask for ourselves, does God have plans for peace and hope in a future for us as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. But we would, as the church, we would go to the New Testament to find out what those plans are. So anyways, the, after the 70 years of 
Bab uh, captivity in Babylon, God is promising plans for a future. But think about that for a second. If you were an adult by the time you started captivity, you're probably not going to live through the whole 70 years. And so this hope must extend beyond the grave. It must look forward to a time of resurrection. Now, one of the most remarkable things I've learned at seminary as I've gone through my studies is that after chapter 29 comes chapter 30, and then 31. Very, very profound, right? <laughs> but, but I believe what Jeremiah is saying, plans for a future and hope, and then he will spend four chapters talking about what those plans are. And so chapters 30, 31, 32, and 33 all talk about the provisions and promises of the new covenant. So that's where we're, we're headed. So if you jump ahead in your Bible to chapter 31, so chapter 31, verse 31, and it says this, Behold, days are surely coming, declares Yahweh, declares the Lord, when I will establish with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a new covenant. Now, two common mistakes that I see applied to this text is, is one, that we read ourselves into the text, which I, I encourage you to avoid putting yourself into the text. Uh, notice that it says the new covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And we've talked in previous sermons about how if we confuse the church and the nation Israel and try to kind of blur them together, we end up hopelessly confused. But if we keep Israel as Israel and we keep the church as the church, then I think the whole story makes sense from beginning to end. So that's the first mistake I see. The second mistake is that a lot of people think the new covenant is only in four verses, from 31 to 34. But in fact, it includes much more than that. In Jer Jeremiah alone, it starts in chapter 30, goes all the way to chapter 33. And then other prophets of the Old Testament also talk about the new covenant as well. So to get a complete picture of the new covenant, we need to take account of all of this data. So in verse 32, if we move on, we'll say this. That the covenant is not like the covenant which I established with their fathers in the day of my grasping them by the hand to bring them out from the land of Egypt. That's talking about the Mosaic covenant that came out of Egypt, and at Mount Sinai, the Lord gave them the Mosaic covenant. And they'll go on to say, my covenant, which they themselves broke. Now, if you remember the story, Moses was up on the mountain getting the law. They're on the ground worshiping a golden calf. <laughs> so they already broke the covenant before Moses even brought, <laughs> brought the law to them. It's like they're instantly breaking the law. And so they themselves broke, although I had proven myself master over them, declares Yahweh. Now it's not that there was an issue with the Mosaic covenant. The covenant was good. The law was good. The problem was the people's hearts. So that's something that is going to change with the new covenant. And the implication here is that while the Mosaic covenant could be broken on the one hand, this new covenant 
will not. It will not be broken. Verse 33 says this, For this is the covenant which I will establish with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. My divine teaching, my law, my Torah, I will place within them, and I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Now compared back to verse 31, where it said the house of Israel and the house of Judah, now we only have the house of Israel. And so this is talking about a time future to Jeremiah when the divided nation would come back together as one united nation. And in contrast to the, the Mosaic Covenant, which was written on stone, tablet, uh, tablets of stone, which Moses brought down from the mountain, this law, God will internally place inside of the Israelites, inside their hearts, if you will. And he will be their God, and they will be my people. And that was always God's desire. It, even back from the Exodus, God had always been saying, he wanted to be their God and they his people. But the problem was they kept rejecting God. They didn't have hearts that were willing to follow. And so it is only divine enablement, God placing his law within them, that will allow them to be this people. In verse 34, it says this, And a man will no longer teach his neighbor or his brother to know Yahweh. For all of them, from least to greatest, will know me, declares Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will no longer remember their sins. So look at this first part of the verse. A man will no longer teach his neighbor or his brother to know Yahweh. Well, this is talking about a time when there will be no need to evangelize the nation of Israel. Why? Because they will all know Yahweh. And this word for know, it's the deepest kind of knowing. It's not, not superficial intellectual. It's the kind of personal, intimate knowledge that touches mind and emotions and will. And they will all know Yahweh from the least to the greatest. So this is talking about a time when every Jew on the planet will be saved. Whenever the new covenant comes into effect, that is the reality that this covenant is talking about. And also, notice that it's a national forgiveness. Okay, we, we have individual forgiveness of sins right from the time of Adam right until the time of the end as well. But this is a special, different category where it's a national forgiveness, unique to the nation of Israel. Now, when is that time? Well, we'll have to get there shortly. But before that, I just want to emphasize, if we jump to the next slide, that these four verses are a summary statement of the New Covenant. But to get the whole picture of the New Covenant, it requires a lot more. Now, Tommy Lal has very kindly passed out a handout for you. And we don't have time to go through all of this in the sermon, but I encourage you to take a, a read through this. It's about a page and a half. But on the first page, just glance at the bottom half, where it says, what are the provisions of the New Covenant? And you'll notice that there are physical provisions, that it talks about the land. Uh, in fact, in Ezekiel, it will talk about 
the desert becoming like the Garden of Eden, that there will be fertile productivity of animals, of the human population will, will multiply greatly. There are also national provisions, and particularly of note here is the fact that all the people of Israel will be regathered into the land of Israel. And their population will be joyful and blessed. There will be one united Israel. There are also political provisions, such as the righteous and just political leadership under the Messiah, the punishment of Israel's oppressors, and worldwide peace. There will be no more war under the new covenant. There are also religious provisions, such as a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. There will be a functioning Levitical priesthood. And lastly, there are spiritual provisions, which is where we, we commonly think of the new covenant. We only think of the spiritual, uh, to the exclusion of all these other categories. So the, the new covenant, I, I think, is broad. It is a marvelous, marvelous covenant that is coming about and as I've said it is contained in Jeremiah 30, 31, 32, 33 and we really consider the whole big picture of what it says. Uh, another aspect of how covenants work is the fact, if we jump to the next slide, that there are really two phases in any covenant. The first is what we call ratification. Ratify. That's when we make a legally binding agreement between two parties, two or more. Uh, for example, Genesis 15 says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. So that's the day he ratified the covenant. But as we've talked about, even till today, 4,000 years later, that covenant still is not fulfilled. So there's a, a there can be a difference in timing between the ratification and what we would call the enactment. The enactment phase would be the implementation or the fulfillment of the provisions of that covenant. Uh, you might think of it this way. If you have a, a relative, maybe a, a wealthy great aunt or something, and she writes you, your name, in her will as the heir of her estate. The moment that she signs that will, that's a legal document. You are the heir but you don't receive the inheritance until what happens? She has to die first, right? And then you receive it. So there's, a, there's that two-step process you might see, just as an analogy for that. So moving on, we've seen that the new covenant includes provisions that are physical, that are national, spiritual, religious, political. It's a very broad covenant, a marvelous covenant. The parties of the New Covenant are Yahweh, the Lord, and national Israel. And now let's talk about the timing just a little bit. The timing of the New Covenant is what we call eschatological. Uh, it means in the last days. It, it is a future end times covenant. And so if you just read through Jeremiah 30 and 31 and 32 and 33, we'll see there are certain events associated with the New Covenant, such as the time of Jacob's trouble, which in the New Testament we call that the Great Tribulation, the seven years of Great Tribulation. Also, we, we see Messianic rule, 
upon the earth. So that implies Christ will have come back to the world. It talks about a new exodus. Okay? The exodus, leaving a foreign land, returning to the land of promise. And that will happen again when God will gather the Israelites from all over the world, bring them back into the promised land. We have the judgment of the nations and we have worldwide peace. And so these are really things that only happen once Christ returns to the earth. And also, when we consider the nature of the covenant, unlike the Mosaic covenant, which was based on human response, if you obeyed, you would be blessed. Here, there are no conditions placed. God simply says, he will do these things. And it is an irrevocable and eternal covenant that the Lord has made. In fact, no less than three times, he will tie the fulfillment of the new covenant to the very order of creation, saying, if you can change the sun, moon, and stars and their cycles, then, then I'll change this covenant, basically what he's saying. So it will happen. It will come to pass. So if we jump back out, zoom out from the New Covenant, back to the big picture, we are well on our way to, to building the outline of our puzzle. Okay, we've seen that the Genesis 3.15 promise gets passed down to Abraham. God established a covenant with Abraham, promising land, seed, and blessing. And each of those three gets expanded upon or amplified by a further covenant. And so we are waiting for a point in the story where all of these covenants will be fulfilled. Because none of them, to this day, are fulfilled yet. So we are waiting for that time. And, and really, these will only be fulfilled when Jesus comes back. And it is his coming back and fulfilling these covenants that brings the kingdom of God to earth. That's the kingdom age that we're looking forward to, when the kingdom of God will take over from the kingdom of the serpent on the world, and the image bearers of God will once again rule the world. So that's where we're headed. Uh, stay tuned for future sermons as we continue to move through the story. Now, we're going to move ahead to our time of communion. And Communion does actually tie into the New Covenant. So I'd like to take us to Luke chapter 22. Got the verses on the slide here. And this will be the first time in the New Testament where we find the phrase New Covenant. So let's see what Jesus says here. Uh, and this is Jesus in the upper room with his disciples. He's celebrating the Last Supper, the Last Passover with them. And he'll say this. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never again eat it. Well, what does the it refer to? It's referring back to the Passover. So I will never again eat the Passover until it, the Passover, is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So Jesus is saying there's a future fulfillment of the Passover. Now, Passover celebrated the exodus, the coming into the promised land, and that's just what we've been talking about, the new exodus, as Israel is regathered into Israel. And when he had taken a cup, 
and given thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. So he's pointing to a future kingdom where once again, he will drink of the fruit of the vine. Now I think one thing that the Christian church has done well through history in terms of communion is looking back to the cross of Christ. And absolutely, we remember that. That's one major, major aspect of communion. What we haven't done as good a job is what it looks forward to in the future. That we, as we celebrate communion, we are also proclaiming that there's a future coming kingdom, that the Lord is coming back, and that at that time he will again drink of the fruit of the vine. So if we jump to the next slide, he'll continue. And when he had taken some bread and given thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now, we, we don't have time today, but if we kept reading in Luke 22, Jesus will go to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he will pray to the Father that the Father would remove the cup from him. What cup is he talking about? Cup of suffering on the cross. And so what Jesus is saying is that his suffering on the cross, his blood, is the ratification of the new covenant. Remember the two-step process, ratification and then fulfillment. Ratification happened at Jesus' first coming on the cross. Fulfillment happens at his second coming, when he comes back to earth. So we will celebrate communion together. We will remind ourselves of the, the work that the Lord has done on the cross in the past. We will also remind ourselves with joy and with hope that the kingdom is coming, that the Lord will come again. And so we proclaim his death until he comes. Now, if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, or if you have not been baptized as a, a public declaration of your faith, uh, we would kindly ask that you participate only by observation. So feel free to watch what we're doing, listen to what we're saying, but really this, this meal is only for those who have believed and been baptized. But we would of course love if at some future time we could invite you to the table. We could offer you the hope of joining in the great banquet in the end of time with the Lord Jesus himself. And so if you would consider placing your personal faith, your trust in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, that what he did on the cross paid for your penalty, the penalty of your sins, that he died, was buried, and was resurrected on the third day. And if you believe that in, you, in your heart, then the Lord promises to forgive you, grant you eternal life and resurrection. So at this time, we'll, we'll ask everyone to stand. We have the elements on the table over here. So please take the bread and the cup, come back to your seat, and then we will partake together.
the body and blood of Christ, let us pray. Father, you sent Jesus Christ, your one and only Son, to die on the cross. And we remember what he said, that he gave his body on our behalf. Take the bread, let's eat together. Jesus, Jesus also promised that at a future time, he would come back to earth, he would return, he would once again drink of the fruit of the vine in the kingdom of God. And so we joyfully remind ourselves that this kingdom is coming, and we have the joy of participating in that. So we proclaim his death until he comes. Let's drink together. 